0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply that proves that award season is a year-round event. I am Katie Rich, the deputy editor for VanityFair.com, and I'm here with the person who boldly uh, filled in for me last week as host, Richard Lawson, our film critic. Thank you.
1: I survived somehow. <laughs> you were great. Yeah. I, hope <laughs> we was still, awesome. I hope we still have listeners.
0: <laughs> Thank you all for sticking around. Uh, our staff writer, Joanna Robinson. Hello. And our uh, digital director, Mike Hogan. Hi. Hi. Hi! It's so nice to have all of us back in one place. Uh, we have a lot to talk about this week, even though there's not really any like big awardsy stuff happening around us. We're going to have an interview with James Gray, the director of The Lost City of Z, and writer. I believe it's called The Lost City of Zed. I've been told.
1: Well, yeah, I was talking with David Sims from The Atlantic, mm-hmm. who's a friend and colleague, and he grew up in London despite having an American accent, and he's insisting and called Lost City of Zed. Oh, jeez. So I think maybe we should follow his. Because oh,
0: it's about British people who, and they call
1: it Zed. They don't call it. Z. They call it Zed. Yeah. yeah. So, maybe with that.
0: <laughs> I really don't well, like
2: Zed in general. We'll have to remember ask Remember when you. I first learned about Zed and, and I was like, I reject this. I know.
0: Well, D- James- don't be
2: problematic, Mike. Come on. <laughs> you know, well, come
0: James Gray is an American, so we- we'll have to ask him about this. Uh, Wait, we can't even be prejudiced
2: against British people anymore? <laughs> <laughs> I, it's going way too or far. Or letters of the
0: alphabet. <laughs> Look,
2: I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just playing it safe. It's like calling French toast egg toast. You know, because they can't call we'll anything call French. Egg.
0: They call it egg toast. The British,
2: everything that we call French something, they call something else. What so, do French they call fries are Fra- chips. chips. French toast They
3: call French toast toast egg toast?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah Right. I'm right. telling you, they don't use French for anything. They, well, they hate, hate the French. French. I know. They hate I mean, the French. They, they, they get to be prejudiced against the French. We should be able to be prejudiced against them.
0: They fought like centuries of wars anyway. against the French. I mean, it comes <laughs> no, from somewhere. I
2: understand. So we'll talk Zed. about all the,
0: We'll just talk to James Gray about this and yeah. nothing about yeah. his movie, obviously. <laughs> uh, uh, so we'll talk about the movie as well. But before that, we have a couple of little tidbits of things going on. Uh, the trailer for the movie Detroit hit today as we record this. It's the yeah. new film from Catherine Bigelow, director of The Hurt Locker and Zero Dark 30, as the trailer reminds us. Uh, it was called The Untitled Detroit Riots Project or some such for a while, and yeah. now we kind of have our first look at it. It's coming out in early August, which, as we've discussed before, is not like super traditional award slot, but it can be. It's when Florence Foster Jenkins came out last year. It's uh, the help slot, is what I always call it. Yeah, it's kind of interesting as a summer movie and an interesting trailer all around.
1: We should also note that Mark Bull wrote the script, and he worked with Bigelow on Zero Dark Thirty, and I believe um, Hurt Locker as I well. Believe so, yeah. yeah, yeah. It looks there was <sighs> the trailer. I mean, you know, we can't really. 100% tell what a movie is from the trailer but from the looks of it it seems a little bit like TV movie-esque maybe or like mm. TV miniseries judging from what Catherine Bigelow's done in the past like it feels like a little smaller in scale in a weird way even though it's about a big story.
0: Well The Heart Locker I think you know it's about the Iraq war but it is about three people That's you know true. it's a yeah. pretty small scale story so maybe it's kind
3: of returning to that vibe
2: mm-hmm.
3: Well I also I think Richard is right in terms of I think TV is rising up to meet sort of what Catherine Bigelow's done in the past with like Gorilla and Shots Fired and We Rise, like all of these shows do feel closer to the tone of of this at least this trailer. I think it's hard to tell actually from this trailer whether or not this movie is going to be good, but given the level of talent involved I'm really excited about it
0: yeah seeing John boyega uh taking the center of a movie I mean him in Star Wars was amazing if for those of us who saw him attack the block and kind of wonder when he'd be a movie star. so it's nice to see him kind of going in a different direction playing a conflicted cop. it seems it's kind of it's a little hard to tell what his entire story is
2: yeah there's something about the bull Bigelow combo that tends to risk i feel like self seriousness you mm-hmm, know and sure. this, and they've taken on there's not a lot of humor seemingly in this story, so you can get ready for like a rather intense heavy-duty experience that may or may not be something people want to do in August.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I think you could certainly make the argument that A movie about race relations and economic tensions in, you know, middle America certainly is relevant to today. Yeah. But whether or not people want to sort of like pay $15 to expose themselves to things that they're experiencing in their own lives, um, I'm not sure. Is it
2: going to be like straight up eat your vegetables or is there some, you know, thrilling, because there was a thrillingness to Zero Dark 30 and Hurt Locker. And also, I think there's a hunger. Among Americans to like figure out what are those places really like? you like, yeah. what were mm-hmm. they dealing with? Whether they were doing good things or bad things, there may be that interest in Detroit at this point in the yeah. 60s. I don't know.
0: I mean, I think you talk about a summertime heavy conversation. There's also inevitably going to be talk about uh, Bigelow and Bulbo being white and it being a story yeah. about uh, race motivated riots in Detroit, which is still a very heavily black city. There's really complicated stuff there that came up when they announced that they were doing the project at all, and I think yeah. it's only going to continue.
1: And of course, you know, Zero Duck 30, while still, I think, mostly a revered. Sort of movie is tainted with a lot of kind of controversy about you know its depiction of torture and Mm -hmm. how fabricated that was or realistic it was. So they're not sort of unimpeachably well, uh, right? And and the idea that he may have relied too much on
2: the official story from the military. Right. From the trailer, I'm guessing he didn't rely. On the official story from the police, because it looks like the police. Started- I think
0: fifty years distance gives us <laughs> yeah. a little more. Lord, I,
2: and
1: I hoped, yeah, That would be
2: something. <laughs>
0: yeah. Uh, yeah, so that'll be in August. I guess it gives us, uh, you know, an early signpost before all the fall festival. And I think start. it's
1: clarified something for us because we talked about it in general terms with I think Joe Reed about mm-hmm. like it being on the landscape for 2017 in movies, but we didn't really know when it was coming out or like what what. It- yeah. So now we know, and I think that yeah. that you know, so one little piece has been put. In the I don't puzzle. think anyone should hold the fact that Bill and Bigelow made that Pepsi.
2: Against them or, or prejudge the film.
1: I mean, it was beautifully shot. It was cinematic.
0: Modern protest to past yeah, protests. Mm-hmm, it's, yeah. all, it's all part yeah. of the spectrum. Um,
1: yeah. Detroit was. Uh, it, it has have a lot of United Airlines product placement in it, though. So that's <laughs> that's, 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 <laughs> that's going to be a problem. problem.
0: I'm wondering if by the time this episode comes out, like 24 hours from now, like there's going to be some new be controversy. 45 come more up. Yeah.
1: Controversy. hertz yeah. Rent a car <laughs> has done something hideous.
3: There. <laughs>
0: Well, from one award season signpost to another, the MTV Movie and TV Awards nominations, uh, they came out just after last week's episode came out. So we're a little bit behind. But, you know, these are important. This is a show for
1: grownups, not for teens. Grownups, it takes us a little longer to discover these things.
0: Uh, The awards themselves are still a couple of weeks away. And the nominations, as usual, are kind of insane and then kind of fun and well they are also including TV shows now which is a sign of the times as anything about where uh, for sure movie and television and they, they,
2: what, they mixed them, them up right they just put like best actor it doesn't matter if you're in a movie
1: or a TV show oh uh, yeah
0: uh, we have best kiss uh, Emma Watson and Dan Stevenson Beauty and the Beast competing
3: against Taraji P. Henson and Terrence Howard in Empire so yeah
1: some categories some categories were, they mixed yeah, up mm-hmm.
3: well acting is still divided but not divided by gender which has been like an interesting awards yeah. season conversation that came up when an, um, a performer from Billions I believe it was last week was sort of challenging this notion of gender divided acting categories which sort of kicked off this debate and Mm -hmm. here comes the mtv movie awards which i don't think that this was true before but they're like you know what we're gonna throw everyone into the same category so
2: well i think that inside mtv they're very conscious of the fact that young people are not necessarily you know recognizing the traditional categories of gender i mean literally orthodoxy is yeah there's a big percentage of young people who are just like i don't I don't identify. And also, wants.
0: it gives you room to, you know, you could have one acting category and then make room for uh, categories like best fight against the system. I don't know what that means, but uh, it unless you have <laughs> Luke Cage loving Mr. Robot, Hidden Figures and Get Out all in the same category. Yeah, I mean,
1: there are kind of two ways to look at this. I mean, one way is it's easy to make fun of the MTV movie awards because they're, you know, they're silly. But like. At the same time, you've got Jarrell Jerome and Ashton Sanders nominated for Best Kiss for Moonlight. You have RuPaul as a, you know, best host get out in, you know, movie of the year. Like, it's representative. So that's that's good. But at the same time, sort of having, you know, a best fight against the system, it's like a little bit kind of corporatizing. It's kind of almost doing what Pepsi tried ooh. to do yeah, and, in I mean, a weird ooh. way.
3: The same thing as this Best American Story category where it seems to me intentionally no straight white Stories are in here, right? You've got Blackish, Fresh Off the Boat, Jane the Virgin, Moonlight, and Transparent, and the, all yeah, good things. I mean, yeah. all great, great properties. But it it does feel like. And intentional, and and maybe that's fine. But and but, like,
0: what yeah. do you actually want to be saying when you say "best American story"? Like the things that represent diverse. It's like it's a kind of a code word. I mean, it's all good things we're recognizing, but it's a weird name for a category. It's Dog whistling. right? And I'm sure like, Ryan Murphy is like, I put American in my shows, and you wouldn't nominate me. What is going <laughs> on? Yeah, I mean, the I, what I like about the MTV Movie Awards is things like best kiss, and like they used to do best fight. Is best fight in there this year? I don't um, think so. Which, uh, there's best villain, like, fight against
3: of, the system, Katie. Uh, it's all yeah. a
0: metaphorical fight now. Uh, but you have things like best villain is Allison Williams and get out the demogorgon and yes. stranger things, Jared Leto and Suicide Squad, Jeffrey D. Morgan and the walking Dead, and West Bentley and American Horse. Like that is an amazing That's category. That's the best category I've ever seen. I'm pulling hard for Allison Williams. Like get in there. I know, demogorgon has a lot of chops so <laughs> who accepts if the demogorgon <laughs>
1: <women's>?
0: <laughs> They find a way for like just the kids to come up and accept it um is this matter in a as an award show like that's fun to watch obviously it's like just for ratings but like is the nominations like the fun here like watching the awards themselves like sometimes there's like weird stunts that happen but half the time it's just about being like oh best kiss okay
1: i tried to watch the movie awards um a year or two ago And it was like Charlie Brown's mom talking. Like it was just
3: like, I just couldn't
1: understand the vernacular at all. (laughs) so like that's true of the video music awards as well um in a way it's sort of this horrifying like like you are old like sort of signifier but um i i'm kind of tempted to watch it this year because it's like trying to be like kind of woke and like you know like progressive and you know looking at that best fight against the system like i can't argue with any of those nominations you know Mm -mm. get Mm -mm. out hidden figures loving luke cage i mean like yeah sure
2: well you know there's a new regime at at mtv now and Mm -hmm. i think that they might be aware that it felt like charlie Brown's mom, that it was just so, it was kind of meaningless. Yeah. MTV TV had gotten yeah. to be from a thing that was really culturally important to us, you know. Or I don't know about you guys, but when I was oh, growing up, mm-hmm. it was like Shoot. everything. Yeah. Totally. And it was dangerous and badass, and yeah. it represented our fight against I was you know, forbidden the older for, for generation. Yeah, same, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so. I think the kind of the things that made us want to rebel are very different from the things that make kids want to rebel now. But I think they're trying to tap into that. That's why it's so woke. It's basically like, let's freak out your parents by putting no straight white people in the best American story. Like, that's the idea of it, I think.
3: I watched last year, uh, presumably for On the Altar, VF.com. And it was... uh, (laughs) Thank you for your sacrifice, (laughs) (laughs) Joanne. (laughs) The rock and Kevin Hart were hosting and it was the craziest thing I've ever seen because they didn't do like a normal stage. They were outside in a circular stage. So everyone was standing around a circular stage. And then there were these insane, I mean, the MTV movie awards have always, I think had like previews for upcoming summer movies or something like that. But it was this insane parade of like Warner brothers had bought the MTV movie awards and it was like Harry Potter and suicide squad and all this stuff. And it was just, we know MTV movie awards are corporate, but this was like the most corporate thing I've ever seen. So I'll be so interested to see if this year is like some different low key politically woke
2: Sort of yeah fun. can they actually like do something meaningful for young people which I think is what they want to do mm-hmm. or are, is that going to run aground on just being so corporate and, yeah. and sold out that it doesn't actually work
0: I mean when you look at the movie of the year nominees you've got Beauty and the Beast which is this huge massive corporate hit and Logan which is somewhere in there that's R-rated and it's for teens but you've also got Get Out which is a huge hit but like yeah. kind of a unusual so kind of it's also funny to
2: do like movie of the year in
0: and, March, Oh yeah, no and, like, you know? and what's crazy is they nominate Moon like, like four other categories, but not movie of the year, like right. <laughs> just because they didn't want it to win. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, but The Edge of Seventeen is in there, and like which that's is great. Th- that's yeah, great and that's movie. not, and no one bought that nomination. Like, that's not something that like someone paid for. Like, they got
1: the yeah. Edge of
0: Seventeen in there somehow, which is a movie we've yeah. been talking about forever.
1: Yeah. And it's probably poised to be a big kind of cult hit when it's on streaming services. Yeah. Does yeah. this
0: mean that like the? I mean, I don't. No teens actually picked these nominees. Like that was picked with MTV. So I don't know who were the ones who like... Well, but their that ears
2: are to the ground all <laughs> yeah, day of what mm-hmm. their audience like, and clearly that movie. I mean, it yeah. did
1: right resonate with that audience, or we don't know yet. I, I, we don't really, really know that the box office wasn't great, but that's not how kids see movies, right? Really. Yeah, so yeah, unless yeah. it's like a Avengers, or maybe it's just Halo. Yeah. yeah.
3: It feels like it could be a Pitch Perfect thing, right? Like that that mm-hmm. Pitch Perfect like had a mod. His box office when it opened exploded i think when it went um you don't even say on video anymore when it came into homes and um <laughs> you know that was the dominant theme of the upcoming mtv movie Awards. so i mean richard has the perfect metaphor for saying like that you know the charlie brown wah, 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 like but remembering the mtv movie awards remembering how hilarious i thought it was when like Ben Stiller did the Mission Impossible spoof or like anything Ben Stiller did on the MTV Movie Awards, I thought was the coolest thing in the whole world. So I hate to look back at it now, but (laughs) (laughs) it's fine. You were a
2: kid. Have mercy
3: on
0: yourself. I still watch uh, Ryan Gosling and Rachel McAdams accepting best kiss when they uh, did their big stage kiss running across the stage and they were an actual couple.
3: So it's
1: weirdly the most romantic thing that's ever happened to me. No. Is, that sad? is that sad
3: if you go back and watch that Ryan Gosling's wearing a shirt that says Darfur so, <laughs> sure you know, oh he god was that's right before yeah.
0: I, before I, the that, MTV movie you, awards you World. really
1: should go Google image that I did that for some reason a couple months ago and like tweeted it out and people were like had forgotten and oh yeah it's, it's an amazing photo like it's just so it's a time capsule yeah. it's like
0: 2005 right there yep I think I've picked my favorite category, and there's so, there's so many good ones. But Best Hero has Felicity Jones from Rogue One, up against the stars of The Flash, Luke Cage, and Arrow, Millie Bobby Brown of Stranger Things, and Taraji P. Henson of Hidden Figures.
1: Hey, good. That is quite good. a
0: combo of people.
1: Yeah, I like it i like this direction i think it's cool that isa ray is in there for next generation star insecure is also in there for best show
0: yeah like against riz Ahmed who it might be for the night of it might be for star wars could be for either who and knows? chrissy metz from this is Us,
1: right yeah no i mean this is like i think this is good it's a sign of something the I mean,
0: kids are doing doing okay
1: yeah as long as it's not again a pepsi ad <laughs>
0: Did you guys talk about the Pepsi ad last week or is this just the first time we've been no, able it to?
1: Uh, yeah, the Pepsi ad, God. there's a lot that's happened since not... the last time we all convened. I was
0: not on Twitter. I was on vacation and I checked on Twitter four hours late and I was like, what is happening? I was so lost.
1: And now Kendall Jenner's in prison. <laughs> it's just... <laughs> just awful. She's in a Holocaust center. Sorry. <laughs>
0: Yikes. Yes, oh, that's God. that's the controversy that's going to evolve as we record this. Okay.
1: Terms apply.
0: So before we talk to James Gray, the writer and director of Lost of Z. Uh, Richard, you published a rave about this movie yeah. on VanityFair.com. Yeah, I don't want to
1: gush to him directly, so I should just <laughs> get, it to, to get, it get it out of the way yeah.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, this is the kind of movie that I think you really want to be coming out in spring. It's kind of a weird time for movies. There's not really, like, a lot of stuff to really dig into. Yeah. This has been a pretty good spring for movies, but still it's, a, it's this lush kind of period piece. It's relatively expensive for the movies that James Gray usually makes and uh, according to you, it's fantastic.
1: Yeah, I saw it first at New York Film Festival back in October and I didn't review it out of there because I heard you know, they it was kind of already known it was coming out in the spring and I said, Well I'll just wait so people can see it, you know, could read it and then go see it. It's so good and I was so surprised because I think James Gray is a really talented filmmaker, but I've never really kind of emotionally connected with his movies. I mean The Immigrant maybe that was from two thousand thirteen. That that's a strong movie, but but this just really grabs me. It's about a real life based on a nonfiction book, about a real life explorer named Percy Fawcett in the early nineteen hundreds was making these forays into the you know, Bolivian Amazon jungle, trying to find this fable. Lost City, not El Dorado exactly, but sort of similar. It has this kind of historical remove, but there's something really contemporary and present about what it says about obsession and sort of like self-definition and all this stuff. And 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 it's beautifully acted by Charlie Hunnam, somebody who I I had sort of not counted, you know, among them. Did you ever
0: the, watch Sons of Anarchy? Or? No, yeah. I,
1: that show is not for me.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I don't think.
1: But um, I you know I'd seen him in Undeclared years ago, and obviously oh, wow. in Pacific yeah. Rim and things like that. But this is just a real. If people see it, and the right people see it, I think that this is like a big breakthrough for him.
0: Joanna, you watch Sons of Anarchy. Did you see this coming in Charlie Hunnam?
3: <laughs> um, he gets to be British in this, right, Richard?
1: Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, yeah. It's always better when they let Charlie Hunnam be British. Yeah. I think the strain <laughs> of him trying to put on his American accent really has like... But I will say this. Sons of Anarchy fans are bananas for Charlie Hunnam. Yeah. They <laughs> love him. I don't get it. And so I'm happy to hear that he's quite good in this. And and maybe that means that the Guy Ritchie King Arthur movie, which I think is one of the most ill-advised concepts I've ever heard of, might not be terrible.
0: So the oh, ads that, for that are suddenly everywhere. Issue.
3: I feel like I well, woke up one day and all of a sudden King Arthur was... was it's
1: rumored to be in the Mad Max slot at Cannes. Oh, like, out of competition, like, kind of opening the festival. Rumor. Oh, yeah, yeah, we were
3: talking about that and how they might have a party at, like, a castle, right? Didn't we Here's like hoping. That? haven't
1: gotten my invitation yet. <laughs> <though>. <laughs> yeah.
3: We're only thinking
0: about this because Richard wants to go to a castle yeah. fair.
1: My concern about Lost City of Z and its release date... You're right, Katie, that it's good counter-programming to, you know, some of the bigger, sort of flashier action stuff that's out right now. Um, but, like... This movie, I think, has real like awards legs or would have it if it was kind of positioned in the right way. Mm-hmm. So I'm just maybe the April release is like a good thing because, OK, get it out of the way. Like it, it stands alone, kind of like Boyhood was like mm-hmm. it stands alone as its own thing. Grand Pest get, Hotel. Right. It doesn't get lost in the clutter. But it's also, you know, it's not the most accessible movie. It's not, yeah. you know, the story isn't that well known that people are going to rush out to see it. So it's being released by Amazon Studios and Bleecker Street. And, you know, Amazon had handled Manchester really well. Mm-hmm. I was talking about it with David Sims again, about how the sign that Amazon campaigned correctly was that Lucas Hedges nomination. That was the one sure. that was like, okay, Michelle and Casey were definitely getting in. The screenplay yeah. was definitely, but that Lucas got one too. It's like, maybe they know what they're doing. Yeah. I don't know. I hope that Z, at least for the art, you know, some of the kind of below the line the technical cinematography is beautiful. I think that James Gray's script is really good. So I hope that it holds on.
2: But judging from your review... And not really more than that. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily sound like the kind of movie that bubbles nicely across the summer, the no. way that like a Midnight in Paris or mm-hmm. a, or a no. oh, Budapest yeah, yeah. do, yeah. where it's like, oh, there's this quirky thing, and it's like a little too hot yeah. tonight, so why don't we go check that out? Yeah. This is like sounds this, more like a it's long December, and like yeah. yeah, yeah, like I don't it, know,
1: kind of like maybe what Silence would have been had mm-hmm. it been a slightly different movie, you know? Yeah, it's long, it's emotionally intense, it's physically intense, kind of. So you're right that it's not kind of this airy uh, you know, Midnight in Paris and Boyhood
2: wasn't that, but Linklater always has a bit of that, even when he's doing three. Oh, hours, sure, you know, yeah, and, and that movie kind of, of bops like, along. It's, yeah, it's mellow. There's something mellow
1: about the movie. It's funny. Yeah.
0: I mean, and then also I think about the critical rallying behind the immigrant, which was under really different circumstances. It was kind of buried by the Weinstein Company, and people really felt like they had to get behind it. And yeah. there's like a, there's a sense of kind of cheering along James Gray movies, especially after that. That I feel like could keep this in the conversation. Like I can see it really coming back for Critics' Awards, if uh, you know, depending on how the rest of the
1: year goes. Yeah, that's true. He is kind of a critical darling.
0: Well, The Lost City of Zed uh, it's opening against Fast and Furious Eight, so there's some fascinating co- counter-programming built into that, and uh, presumably it'll. It, it's, from what I hear, it's you have to see it on the big screen, so people should wait for it. I don't know when it'll be on Amazon, but uh,
1: I would. It, yeah, I would. I would say watch it on the big. Beautiful. It's on 35 millimeter film. It's really, mm. really yeah. something.
0: No, they they don't make them like that anymore.
1: So we're here today with uh, James Gray, the writer and director of The Lost City of Z slash The Lost City of Zed. We had some debate before you got here about what, what we're supposed to call it. But they call it Z in the film, obviously, because they're British. That's right. I call it Z.
4: So let's go. Oh, oh See, that's interesting. No, okay. You're correct if you yeah. say Z. Yeah. Right. yeah.
0: Well, wait, since you're an American, we weren't sure where you fell down on this uh, spectrum.
4: I think I just make lots of
1: mistakes as an American, so I go with Z. (laughs) That's fair. So the movie is based on David Graham's best-selling nonfiction account of himself going into the Amazon to research Perry Fawcett, um, this early 20th century explorer who went missing in the Amazon. And so it kind of, it's historical, but it's also in the present. But the film is just historical. So can you talk to us a little bit about your sort of origins with this story and what attracted you to it and, and why you kind of chose to make it the way that you know, uh, you did with just the, the, the set in the
4: past. Well, there's, um, multiple aspects to your question, which it's part of it is, you know, what draws you to a piece of material to begin with. Yeah. And I, I had been sent the script or the book, I should say it wasn't published yet. And I just got a very strange call from Brad Pitt saying, Jimmy Jam, you know, I, I got this book and, uh, can you read it? That's pretty and good,
0: Brad Pridman.
4: Thank you very much. <laughs> and I was baffled because it's not exactly a call you get every day, particularly about something like this. And I have no idea what he and his brilliant producers, G- Jeremy Kleiner and Didi Gardner. I don't know what they saw in me to do it. I mean, I had never been outside of Queens or Brooklyn in any of my films, basically. <laughs> Did so you
0: know either, any of them previously? I,
4: I knew Pitt. Uh, he had seen the very first film I made at Sundance, which is a thousand years ago, and uh I sort of struck up a friendship with him after that. You know, he called me after seeing the film. This was a movie I did called Little Odessa. This was 1994 now. My God. And um, I became good friends with him. But I didn't talk about anything like this with him. It was just out of the blue in that sense. And I read the book and I thought, well, this is excellent. But. It's impossible to adapt. You've got all this stuff where David Grant, as you say, in real life, is walking around, you know, the Mato Grosso region trying to find Fawcett and retrace his steps. And it presented insane logistical challenges. But there was a very small passage in the book where it talked about Fawcett's father being an alcoholic and a gambler and that he had destroyed the family fortune and that Fawcett had sort of lived his life trying to make a name for himself in some way to try and redress that grievance, if you will, that his name was so trashed. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I sort of understand that. I found it very moving that someone's obsession could grow out of such a lack. Yeah. So the, then I said, okay, well, that's a really interesting character. I, I don't want to do this movie, but that's an interesting character. And then you know what happens after a span of days, you start to think about it. and You say, well, I know I can't. I don't want to do that movie. But that was interesting. And then one thing led to another. And before you know it, I find myself completely obsessed. And the decision about the adaptation to get rid of the grand stuff was really based on one thing only, which is that I had seen versions of that done already and brilliantly well. Mm -hmm. I, I felt that, you know, you can't top what Spike did with adaptation. So I didn't want to do some kind of postmodern like revisiting where I'm cutting to David Grant because essentially David Grant's like me, you know, I'm mm. we're both like genetically designed to be accountants in Minsk, I like to say. So <laughs> the idea of us going to the jungle is the joke, right? We right. walk around we're like, hi, my name is Morty and I'm talking <laughs> to an indigenous person. You know, I didn't want to do that. And sometimes you have to look in a broader sense, sometimes you have to look backwards to go forwards because what I felt was that First of all, Hollywood doesn't really make sort of David Lean-esque movies anymore. They just don't. But also, David Lean is an incredible director. So please don't misunderstand me. not bad-mouthing David Lean. Uh, but he uh, was restricted by early 1960s politics. And when you watch Lawrence of Arabia or something like that, you know, you have a goodness and he's playing an Arab man, which is absurd. And you have this very odd treatment of the homosexual angle in the, in the film, because he's kind of shying away from it, but he he wants to talk about it, but he can't. A, so what I felt was to do it in that sort of style, but to update it with our sense of politics in 2001, 2015 which is when I started making the film. So, all of this went into the pot. I mean, you're asking a, a very good and vast question. So it demands this lofty and pretentious answer from me.
1: That contemporary aspect to it, um, I think, mixed with this, you know, it's shot on 35 millimeter film. It has this kind of grand, you know, Lawrence of Arabia as sort of scope to it. I guess this may be a a tricky question to answer, but like, how organically did that come to you, or were you straining the whole time to be like, okay, we have to kind of keep a modern political sensibility in mind while also making these sort of like aesthetic allusions, maybe to to a kind of older style of cinema?
4: It was always the intent. It was always there from the beginning. Because when it's, I have a very big contrary bone in my body. If everybody is doing X, I feel like I have to do Y, which is usually quite harmful and. I just felt that it was not something that I was seeing a lot in the theaters. So I I feel like it's my job not to just simply do what everybody else is doing. I feel like it's my job at least to try to do something that is not, you know, cookie cut. And what is in vogue is a kind of postmodern approach to material, a a kind of certain distance from the characters, a, a, a kind of almost an archness. And I just felt if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to put myself into it, I have to make it a form of personal expression, if you will. I know this all sounds completely ham-fisted and in some ways self-obsessed, but you kind of have to be in order to make a film that involves a thousand continents and, you know, 50,000 countries. So it was always part of the original calculus if you will
0: so because brad pitt brought this to you he has this production company that's been incredibly successful lately was yeah. there ever a point of struggle where you had to be like no we need to make it old-fashioned or have to shoot on 35 or go on location or did you have the support from the beginning to make it as vast and expensive as you wanted it to be
4: they were absolutely fantastic i mean their hobby is winning an oscar i mean every five seconds they're <laughs> winning no. Oscars. so they, they and they really do protect the filmmaker and there is no way i can oversell how important that is. Stanley Kubrick once said the best thing about movie directing. He said making a movie is kind of like trying to write war and peace in a bumper car in Coney Island, <laughs> <laughs> which is completely true. So you already have a huge set of issues that you're going to have to deal with on a logistical level every single day. Oh, the the river has risen and the, you know one of the rafts got destroyed. And they, they, okay. You have that. If you heap on top of that, Uh, we got this note from the dailies. They don't like the way that so-and-so's eyebrows look. Yeah. It is such an added level of difficulty. So when you don't have that, there is such, uh, it's like a huge weight. is lifted from your shoulders and it is beautiful. And they protected me. And many of my decisions were totally insane. (laughs) One one of them is 35 millimeter, by the way, (laughs) which is a whole other story about how we got the film out and everything. But um, no, they're very supportive and it's, I can't tell you how great that is.
0: I mean, people go in, people shoot in the jungle and go insane. Like, there are multiple movies about people making movies in the jungle and going insane. How did you avoid that? Or or are you still?
4: (laughs) I I don't think my wife would think I avoided it. In some ways, you never came back from that jungle. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, Well, here's the thing. You always feel like, you know, you hear stories about Werner Herzog and Francis Coppola and You think you can plan better and you're smarter than they are and you can't and you're not. (laughs) And you get down there and the jungle tells you what to do. I I was fortunate only in one respect, which is that it's only about 60% of the film. So I was there for about four months. You know, you're talking about Francis Coppola. He was there for a year and I cannot understand that. I mean, to me, after the way it worked for me, the first two weeks I was there, I kind of was like, I'm doing it, I'm doing it, I'm making this movie in the jungle, it's fantastic, <laughs> I'm doing it. And then what happens after about two weeks is a certain sameness starts to set in to the routine. And you wake up in the morning and it's 4.30 in the morning and you're in your eco-lodge, which is sort of like Jonestown. And you put your glasses on and they're completely fu- you know steamed yeah. over from the humidity. And this is 4.30 in the morning, it's like 90 degrees, it's crazy. Oof. And the sound when you wake up, You don't have to have an alarm because all the insects and the animal life in the jungle is so loud that it gets you up on its own. And you wake up at 4.30 in the morning, I would get in this van and, you know, really bumpy down to the banks of the river and you get on the rafts and you go down or up the river. If you're shooting on the river or if you're getting into, you know, you beach the raft and you go into the jungle. And after about two weeks, that 100 degrees, 100% humidity, you're on the raft, there's the rain that comes at three, that routine starts to drive you crazy. Mm -hmm. And there's there's really no way around it. My biggest problem, uh, to be candid about it, wasn't the day-to-day shoot, which was, of course, uh, arduous. It was the fact that there was no break from it. You know, I couldn't be a spoiled brat. We were pretty much in the middle of nowhere on the Don Diego River, and I couldn't you know, go get a massage and have like a great meal at the Four Seasons or something and be like a spoiled guy for a day or two. You're there and you're in it and it feels like there's no break. So after a while, I was very, you know, I I, I was pleased to come home. <laughs> Do you feel like that full
1: immersion adds to the kind of artistry as a filmmaker for the actors? um Or is it in some ways a hindrance or or maybe it's both? I don't know. Well,
4: it's an excellent question because it's a complicated thing. The actors, I think, really grooved. To it, I mean, I know Charlie and Rob essentially had like a kind of a weird starvation competition, (laughs) uh, which was almost like, it looks like you've got a pear in your lunch. I didn't get a pear. Well, I don't have to have a pear. I'm just having water. (laughs) You know, it was this sort of thing back and forth. So I think it helped them. It helped inform them. For me, it's a different story. The jungle is not, (laughs) you know, it's not meant for the filmmaking apparatus. Right. And, you know, I just to tell you a brief sort of thing to give you an idea, at the end of the film, and I feel actually terrible about this because we were using vintage lenses from the early 1970s, we had a plant growing inside of the camera mechanism. <laughs> and I don't even understand how that's possible, but we basically screwed up one of the cameras and the, the lenses got humidity inside their coating and we ruined a couple, which is a way of me telling you that it's not, it, the, the technical apparatus is not welcomed by, you know, right. Nature by nature. <laughs> yeah.
0: With I mean, you talk about how before this you'd never made a movie outside Brooklyn or Queens, but uh, The Immigrant really was, you know, it's very complicated. The period piece, the design of that was really was. incredible. Was there kind of a graduation for that? Like you'd gone from Two Lovers, which is a very, you know, movies are hard to make, but it's a very straightforward story. It's simple. It's a couple of characters and you do a period piece. It's bigger and then you're ready to go to the jungle. Did you need that kind of in-between step?
4: It's an excellent point. I hadn't thought about it like that. Um, the answer is absolutely, but it wasn't designed that way. I had written this script in 2009 and 2010, and I couldn't get it made. So I went off and wrote a smaller movie about which I was also very passionate, which was The Immigrant, and that was, uh, that was a weirdly difficult movie to make in a way that I didn't anticipate. I mean, to give you an example about that film, I said, I have to shoot at Ellis Island. I have to. And Ellis Island said, okay, sort of begrudgingly. You know it's a landmark. And I said, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I live here, yes. And they said, you can shoot here but only at night. And I said, yes. And then I realized, well, wait, what did I just say yes to? Because it's all daytime when the immigrants came through the Great Hall. And then before I knew it, I had barges lining up around outside the Great Hall with 10,000-watt lights in all those half-moon windows, and then it becomes like a major thing just shooting at night there. And I guess the answer to your question is it did prepare me to some degree for the logistical size, you know, the, the, the logistical issues. Because, you know, if you're following Joaquin Phoenix around Brooklyn with a handheld camera, it is not the same thing. It just isn't. It's sort of like the difference between painting in gouache and making a kind of interactive you know it's a it's not the same medium yeah. even
0: yeah and i mean filming in new york alone legit even if you're just following walking phoenix around like there are permits and there are people who are going to walk into your shot like there's always something that's going to get in the way so it was a lot of practice there
4: yes you're right about that especially having made films in brighton beach where the people who live there are not only don't care that you're making a film but are almost overtly hostile <laughs> to the fact that you're uh, you know bothering their routine they will Walk right through a shot without minding at all. Yeah, no cop can stop them. <laughs> so, um, this film is
1: being released by Amazon Studios. They're kind of a new player, a big player suddenly on the scene. But I'm curious to hear from you because you strike me as something of a—I mean—a film fan and a film sort of not a purist exactly, but you know, you want to shoot on 35 millimeter film when you can. What are your thoughts on this kind of these new distribution models and all that stuff? I mean, not to uh, put you on the spot
4: about your distributor now, but well, no, my distributor has been fantastic. Yeah. I mean, they've been wonderfully supportive of the movie. You know, it's um, it's interesting. You know, I, I appreciate, by the way, you couching what I am in more positive terms. I'm often referred to as a film nerd, which I suppose is uh, more accurate. But there's a part of me that thinks it's terrific because the more opportunity you have to make different kinds of movies, the better off you are. On the other hand... There is an aspect of the big screen and the communal experience and the image projected from behind you onto that screen that is a magic, and I think that people have an incorrect assumption, which is that an art form will live forever, and that's not really what happens in this world. Now, painting has lived since Lascaux, basically, because... You need $50 of paint and $10 worth of canvas or whatever, and you can make a painting. But if you look at something like opera, how difficult it is amount of production and the way that opera was a totally common popular medium in 1860 or 1870. And now I want to go to the opera and I go to the Great Met, which is the greatest, and it's $5 for a ticket and everybody is dressed up and you know you basically can't go unless you're a jillionaire you see the way that the art form has changed and not for the better. Yeah. So I have worries about cinema because I think that when people have 60 or 70 inch televisions at home, as I do, they think, we think, they don't have to leave their house to watch a movie. an Apple TV and I just download the movie and I watch the movie. But I understand that's great. And it's great I can watch, you know, Broadway Melody of 1940 whenever I want, that's great. But it's not the same thing. So I worry about the move towards a model in which most of it is about sitting at home. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that that is a change in the art form that I'm not totally thrilled with. May I say, though, that the question is larger than that. And it has to do with the studios and the way that they functioned since about 1980, which is a much larger point, And I don't want to bore your listeners or you. <laughs> But to be very quick about it, the studios made a concerted effort once certain conglomerates bought them. They became all about profit and loss and about marketing. And what you see now is that they got rid of what you might call lost leader movies. Mm -hmm. Jack Warner or Harry Cohn or Daryl Zanuck, they made films that were lost leaders. They made one or two films every year that they didn't think would make a lot of money. But they made them because they thought they would be, and oh, that's our prestige picture, you know, like that kind sure, of attitude. Yeah. right? Okay, so what does this mean? One or two a year, seven studios, means you got 14 interesting movies a year. Yeah. And what happened was the studio said, we don't, those don't make money, we got to get rid of them. So now what you have is you have no longer a broad-based interest in the product. The movies have lost their cultural relevance. The studios ruined that broad-based interest in the product, and that's why they're less culturally relevant than they are today. I'm sorry to give such a long-winded answer. But no,
1: it's. I mean, I think it's a fascinating thing that you're talking about and, and a dismaying one, too. And I guess the sort of move seems to be toward television or limited series even, you know, something like Big Little Lies, which was wonderful and very artistically assured. Is that anything that you'd ever want to attempt, or is that
4: too far afield from... Well, it is something uh, interesting. You know, Brilliant Alexander plots, obviously, was originally a TV thing, and mm-hmm. that's fifteen hours of TV, you know. And it's great cinema in its way. But the problem is, is that it's not the same art form. It's sort of like saying, well. You've written these novellas. Will you now write this epic poem? Do you know what I mean? And all of your training, if you want to use that nauseating word, but all of your training goes into writing a two-hour long film, which has a certain structure to it. And then all of a sudden you go off and you write something that's 10 hours or whatever. It's not the same idea. A movie is almost like, it's like a bullet. It's a single idea that you can hold in your hand and it has to come to you with brute force. A TV series unfolds over a kind of indefinite period of time, and it replicates, in my own view, it replicates the sort of birth-life-death cycle a little less well, because you don't know when it's going to end and if it ends, and it's why even great series end often in a very uh, unsatisfying way. I mean, the rage that was greeted David Chase at the end of The Sopranos Mm -hmm. is a perfect example. The Sopranos was brilliant. But it's an example of why TV doesn't replicate the cinematic experience because it was it went on for a long time and they didn't know what to do. It stopped replicating that cycle. You know, movies evolved for a reason. It's not a random series of events that caused the two-hour-long film. It was a two-minute thing, a, a ten-second thing, right? There was a zoetrope, mm-hmm. and then there was a two-minute thing, and then there was a one reel, a two-reeler, and then around nineteen thirty thirty-one. Maybe even earlier with silence, but around 1931, movies settled into like 90 to 120 minutes. And you realize that anything shorter is weirdly unsatisfactory, and anything longer you're kind of shifting in your seat. Um, unless it's a 5 act structure like The Godfather or something. But this is an evolution, and it's settled in there for a reason. Yeah, I wonder if there will be some
1: eventually some sort of marriage between the two. And I think that something like these kind of limited series on TV that have a definitive endpoint, maybe are the kind of happy medium. But um yeah,
0: I think about like The Nick, which, you know, got canceled, but it had two seasons and it yeah. seemed to kind of like wrap up its story. And, you know, Steven Soderbergh gets sick of the movie industry for, I think, a lot of the same reasons you've been talking about and goes and makes something gorgeous on television. But like you're saying, it's different.
4: Absolutely. And may I say what you you bring up an excellent point, which is that in England, they would have series that would go two years definitively. Mm-hmm. And that was it. That was it. Now the United States we work a little differently. We're a total <laughs> profit. Uh, or, so you look at something like All in the Family. It's a perfect mm-hmm. example. Uh, early nineteen seventy one started a sitcom. So you watch the first two th- two seasons of All in the Family. It is astonishing television. And even if you watch it today, you can't believe what they're talking about. It seems like it was made yesterday. And then baby Joey comes and Archie becomes a nice guy and it goes on for a thousand years. And then in 1980, you realize it doesn't resemble what it did in 1971. They went off the rails. Yeah. So there is this thing that you're talking about with the Nick. And I have huge admiration for Stephen and not with that. And as with many other things, it's a compactness to it that mm-hmm. does matter. Yeah,
1: yeah, for sure. At the same time, while there is that is maybe the future, I think that something like Lost City got made, you know, is encouraging for you know us kind of like cinephiles or whatever, you know, <laughs> like right, like that. There is there are rays of hope, I think, or or are well, you I I
4: right? don't want to bum you out on this lovely morning, <laughs> but uh, you know, I wrote that movie in two thousand nine, yeah. and I was shooting it in two thousand fifteen, and it took me pounding the pavement basically every day. Yeah, so. I don't want to complain because you're right. It did get made. You know, you read stories about the old United Artists in Mm the 1970s where directors would come in and they would say, I have a dream. Last night I had this dream about a story and they say, well, that's actually literally the case in Robert Altman's case. He had a dream. He went to Alan Ladd at 20th Century Fox and he said, Mr. Ladd, I had a dream last night about these three women and blah, blah, blah. And next thing you know, he says, yeah, go make the movie. And it's called Three Women. (laughs) Yeah. And you're like, well, wait a minute, what? You you went in to meet with Alan Ladd and told him you had a dream? I don't even understand that. And that's the way it was. Yeah. And the business has changed radically. The business has changed hugely even since I started working in it.
0: Well, do you see things like Moonlight winning Best Picture as say, you know, I, I, like we try keep trying to bring Rise of Hope and you <laughs> throw cold water on it? But I, when I, when I see Moonlight winning Best Picture and a Plan B film, that it just seems like there's something there, like there's an ability to reward movies like that that are kind of fought for and made on this independent level, and I mean, maybe not unlike Little Odessa was made, it, it, there does seem to be something keeping everything afloat.
4: You're, you're right about that, and I think that Moonlight's success is an astonishment. On the other hand, Moonlight, you know, I don't know what the final grosses were or something. It's no. not something I'm a pro at, but I don't know if they were all that great. Ultimately,
0: it hasn't made hundred million dollars, right? Of that.
4: And that does matter to people. So, I don't know. Maybe I'm completely wrong. Maybe I'm <laughs> off base, and <laughs> I just worry because there are a lot of people of talent, you know, out there, and you hope that the voices are heard. part of the challenge of of the cinema is that it's a craft as well as an art and you can't really just get out of bed pick up your iPhone and make a movie yeah. it, there's the whole apparatus that is necessary maybe it will change radically in a way I'm um, it will change radically in a way that I can't foresee you know I sometimes I view the cinema like 200 years from now we won't understand or believe that this could happen you know even today if I'm if I watch Cleopatra, the Joseph Mankiewicz movie, which is, you know, I think, the most expensive movie ever made when adjusted for inflation. And you have shots where they have 15,000 extras. Yeah. And I watch that and I go, I don't, I don't understand. They got 15,000 extras for this shot and they had 15,000 costumes. And like, mm-hmm. that's insane. Yeah. And so even today, you look at that and you go, how did they do that? Today, we just have CG. We add people, you know, we tie, we have tiling and all that. 200 years from now, they'll look at making movies like we look at the pyramids. Mm -hmm. Can you believe that they got 200 people together for two years and they spent (laughs) millions of dollars? Today we just open up our device and we go... Handsome guy, beautiful woman, they're in a train and they kiss, <laughs> and then it makes the image for you. Hey. So, in terms of looking
1: forward for yourself, I mean, you know, we talked about, um, how you, you made this shift from contemporary p- pieces in Brooklyn and Queens and New York City into The Immigrant, which is, you know, set in New York, and now you've gone to Bolivia and to England, and, um, do you have any sort of ambition past that? Like any, any sort of new territory you'd like to explore?
4: Well, my next film, which I start shooting in a matter of months, is, uh, Outer space. So I guess the answer is yes. Oh, so you do. Wow. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's a whole set of different terrors, you know. You'll you'll be living in space for four months. (laughs) I'll be living in the sound stage for four months. Right. Which is, it's all that's, it's so weird because, you know, the last picture was shot where it was. And now this one I'm going to bike ride to work because the stage is so close. And that has filled me with another kind of terror, which is, is it going to be physically too easy for me? Mm. A- am I going to coast? I have to maintain a kind of psychotic approach to the material in a way. You don't want to be the guy with the big trailer and the hot tub in the trailer.
0: Are you filming in New York?
4: Los Angeles. Okay,
0: yeah. So that's uh, that's another easy place. You get to go be- have a car or a bicycle and the weather's great. And
4: <laughs> Yes, that's true. But it's like I say, that ease is its own terror because you don't want to fall into complacency.
0: I mean... You- you feel like you see that in people like when not to call people out, but like, have you watched it happen with other filmmakers? Like where there seems to be an ease that sets in and then maybe you never get back the psycho- psychosis you're talking about.
4: I haven't seen it personally. I think I've, I've witnessed a point where filmmakers do get tired. Um, I think that's the way Maestro Scorsese once put it in, in an interview I, I heard or read that filmmakers begin to get tired and I think that that's what he was saying. It's interesting he hasn't. Yes, you that's know. What he's saying. No, he's a remarkable person. Yeah, I mean, silence
0: is not the work no. of someone who's tired. And
4: you know, and Wolf of Wall Street too. Yeah. I mean, certainly it's not a, a he, but he's a. I mean, he's a very special person. I feel that this exhaustion does come from the fact that you have to fight, and at a certain point, you see it in the careers of direct. You know, because I watch an old movie every single night, and it's very rewarding. I'll give you a perfect example. I watched a film called Strangers When We Meet, which is directed by a man named Richard Quine. It's with Kim Novak and Kirk Douglas. and It's a, a beautiful film, a remarkable movie. It was made in, I think, 1960. I, I could be wrong, but I think it's 1960. And I'm watching this movie, and it's remarkable. And he made another film called Drive a Crooked Road with Mickey Rooney, which is excellent, an excellent noir. And I'm thinking, what happened to Richard Quine? Yeah. Well, why aren't we all talking about Richard Quine? I've seen these two films; they're remarkable. And then you read about Richard Quine, and they ground they ground him into the dirt. Mm. The, the system. He fought and fought and fought, and then he he couldn't fight anymore. So, it's incumbent upon me to try and keep the energy up.
0: <laughs> thank you for doing it <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. I'm yeah. trying this has been amazing thank you James for, for talking with us and we talked about the film before you got in here but I'm a huge fan I think it's really a you. beautiful piece of work so thank congrats you. on that and I hope that everything goes smoothly and maybe we'll be you know we talk a lot about awards on this podcast so maybe we'll be yeah. talking about Zed you know thank uh, you so later much this year yeah. thank you
0: uh, before we wrap up this week's episode, uh, real quick, there's another movie opening this weekend called uh, Fate of the Furious, the eighth movie in the Fast and Furious franchise. I love the pun. I'm a big fan. Uh, Joanna and Richard, you guys saw it. Uh, Joanna, you say it's great or at least fun. Yeah, I thought it was
3: really fun. And I actually thought I liked it better than... I think six and seven, and I could not tell you why. Maybe it's just because like the rock keeps getting bigger somehow, like physically, more bigger? muscles keep yeah, keep <laughs> get, more muscles keep getting added. And then Jason Statham. Here's the one thing I'll say about Jason Statham: he always knows exactly what movie he's in. Mm-hmm. Like I, not everyone always does, but Statham does, and he gets a lot of really fun. Like in the past, he's played the villain, and this he gets a lot more fun things to do especially one very fun fight at the end so and then charlie theron shows up at the, as the villain her lines make no sense but she's just delivering them with an intensity and these wide crazy eyes and it doesn't matter it's just it's fun it's really fun
1: yeah i mean she plays it kind of like she's the, her snow white and the huntsman character <laughs> but like in oh. Modern Day, it's like a it's, a, it's a lot of acting from her but yeah statham is great the movie as a whole i think is perhaps more self-aware than the series has been in the past. It just
0: keeps getting more self-aware. Even more self-aware than yeah. Seven. Yeah. <laughs> seven uh,
2: well, I
1: felt like they seven pretty is, much knew what they were... As,
2: as Joanna yeah. said yesterday, it was Looney Tunes.
1: Yeah, I mean, they've known what they're doing for a little while, but this one feels even more sort of arch and referential, and it seems a little bit like they're playing more to that kind of, like, intelligentsia who are like, well, these movies actually are quite fun, you know? Like, they, mm. th- it seems oh. like that. It seems a little bit less organically silly right i see um which kind of diminished my enjoyment of it a little bit but like for the for the most part i mean it's really it's just fun has it moved
0: yeah. on from the kind of, like cuz seven had some of the morning aspect of a uh, paul walker uh in it i think
3: basically there moved is, on from that
1: there is uh there is i'm not spoiling it there is some
3: a very reference big it. it's, it's referenced <laughs> very yeah. big yeah. moment that's about paul yeah. walker they, yeah
1: i feel like they're going to have to
2: do that forever that's part of the it's sort of his family
3: the series yeah, is about fam, family
2: fam. yeah yeah.
0: And uh just real quick, uh, Richard, you said they don't drink Corona? No, they movie? don't drink Corona, what which happened? is
1: sort of a foundational. So part of the VF text yeah. Yeah. I'm
0: writing an expose about this. I'm yeah. <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh you can choose to see Lost City of Zed or Fast and Furious or this both. weekend. Good, or both great yeah, double if you're feature. living in the if you're living where they're both out, see them as a the double feature. And that does it for this week's episode. Uh thanks for listening. Please rate and review us on iTunes. We appreciate it. We love hearing from you guys on Twitter as well. And uh, you can find us all at vanityfair.com writing about Corona and City of said and all kinds of other things and uh, we're all on twitter at little goldman and on our own i met katie rich richard
1: uh rylas
0: joanna joe wrote this and mike
1: egg toast <laughs> mike With underscore an underscore? Yeah, egg, yeah, yeah. underscore? egg toast. Underscore toast.
0: <laughs> this episode was edited and produced by alana milner and jennifer lie and thanks to laura Mayer and andy bowers at panoply
3: and this week the award for worst idea for a remake of the kids are all right goes to katie rich the kids are doing okay ever wanted to go inside the Met Gala? I'm Cho Minardi and this week on the Run Through Vogue we take you inside the world's most exclusive and glamorous party. We'll talk about the best looks from the red carpet and everything that happened after. Listen to the Run Through Vogue wherever you get your podcasts.